0: All right, well, two weeks ago, we came to the end of our series on First Samuel, and uh, we are returning this morning, uh, I think it was mentioned in the service last week, to the Gospel of John. We were last in the Gospel of John uh, back in the summer of last year, June of 2020, and at that point, we, we kind of ended the series Towards the end of what is called this farewell discourse of Jesus, which goes from the end of John chapter 13 and through John chapter 16. And in this particular section, Jesus has been speaking of his departure. And that brings to the disciples, as we can easily imagine, were we them in that situation, it brings to them two things uh, confusion on the one hand. What are you talking about that you're leaving? Uh, And it brings to them sadness as well as they hear these words from Jesus. And into that sadness, into that confusion, Jesus speaks some of the greatest words that we find in Scripture of consolation, words of hope, words of encouragement, promises of, of peace and joy and love promises even of, of the fact that it's better that he goes away than that he stays with them, which is nearly unimaginable to think that somehow this could be better. I'm going to read for us this morning the first 15 verses of John 16. I've actually already in this series preached on uh, the first four plus verses from this chapter, as, or from this section, as well as uh, the last ones from 12 uh, onward. And so this morning, I thought I would read it for context, but I'm really going to be focusing on the middle, uh, verses 4 through 11 of this passage this morning. So follow along with me in your Bibles or your bulletins as you would like for this portion of the living and the life-giving Word of God. Jesus said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you Will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent you, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin... Because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A surprising advantage. Lord, we pray that you would help us as your people to hear these words today and to hear them aright. And to hear how they minister to us, as well as to the disciples who heard them first, spoken by you, Jesus. We pray then, Spirit of God, Spirit of truth, illumine the word for us this morning. That we might see Jesus, that we might understand these great things. And we pray in his name. Amen. Eleven troubled hearts. Eleven of them. Eleven men listening to Jesus and hearing words as he spoke them that filled them with sorrow. It filled them with sadness. They were having trouble, though Jesus was speaking to them words that that should have been, that are, in fact, words of comfort. They were having trouble receiving them as words of comfort because they were consumed with other words that he had said. They they were consumed with the words that he said when he said, I will only be with you for a little while longer. And where I'm going, you cannot now come. And those words filled their hearts. Peter had earlier in this conversation asked Jesus where he was going but one gets the impression from what Jesus has said here to us that none of you ask me where I am going, that they were too caught up in the actual departure. They were, they were too caught up in the idea that they were about to be bereft of the one whom they considered to be the one to really focus on what was actually happening and where he was actually going and what the significance of that was for their lives. What did it actually mean that he was going to this place that he was leaving them? Sometimes it is hard to hear good news when you are full of sorrow and sadness. I've spoken to many of you in many times of great difficulty and sorrow and sadness, and you know, you know that it is hard to hear sometimes because we are consumed with the grief that we feel at that particular moment, and yet still Jesus speaks to them. He speaks to them of the surpassing promises and the purposes of God, and in particular and this is just by way of reminder of what has been spoken already by our Lord up to this point in this discourse, he's spoken to them of the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's spoken to them, in essence, in fulfillment of what's being, of what was said in Ezekiel about this Spirit who will come. He's talked to them already about two particular aspects of the ministry of the Spirit of God that we've highlighted in sermons that have now been a couple of months ago. In the first place, he's talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit to minister to us, the people of God, the presence of Christ, the ongoing presence of Christ. So the Spirit gives life to the words that Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I will come to you. I'll come to you in my spirit who will minister to you my presence. The second aspect of the ministry of the spirit that Jesus has highlighted for them is that the spirit is the spirit of truth. Now, we see that at the end of the section that I just read for us, but it's also in earlier sections in this discourse as well. The spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. So Jesus says, I'm leaving, but you will still have my presence and you will still have my guidance and my instruction through the Spirit. Now, in our passage then this morning, Jesus speaks of a third aspect of the ministry of the Spirit, if you will, a third advantage to the departure of Jesus. Now, I I just want to suggest to us, and I've tried to state it already even in the introduction to this, that advantage is a rather stunning word in this setting. It it causes us to step back and think, how could something be better than what they had experienced to this point with respect to the presence of Jesus, the instruction of Jesus? But, But advantage is important because what Jesus is saying is not listen, I'm going to give you a consolation prize on my way out the door. You know, here's a nice little parting gift for you. I'm leaving, but here's something in the meantime to tide you over. That's not the way Jesus presents this at all. He says, it's an advantage. It's actually better for you that I am going away. And so what I want us to do today is is I want us to try and understand what the advantage is. What exactly is he saying here? What's the advantage of the departure of Jesus that is being described here? But not only do I want us to understand it, the the second part is, is to ask the question, are we personally engaged? Are we personally experiencing the advantage that Jesus has spoken of here as the people of God? But let's first make sure that we understand what is being described here, frankly, what is not being described by Jesus. So the advantage, as Jesus explains it, uh, we'll start with verse 7 of the passage. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The advantage is obviously found in the person, and the work of the helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth whom Jesus will send. And what he's describing for them is that the impetus for this coming and this sending of the Spirit to the disciples, and then through them to us as well, is the departure of Jesus. Now, Let's say two things before we unpack this a little bit more. We have to be clear about what Jesus is not saying before we try and understand what he is saying. In the first place, let's be clear about this. Jesus is not making here some kind of a metaphysical statement about his presence and the presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, and I'm thankful to D.A. Carson for pointing this out, uh, in his commentary, in other words, there's not a question here of can the Spirit and Jesus occupy the same place at the same time, as if you could only have one or the other. You know, if if you're holding something and you want to pick something else up, you might have to put this down in order to pick this up. That's not the idea that's being communicated here. After all, Jesus himself is full of the Holy Spirit, right? So so there's not some kind of metaphysical, spatial problem with the Spirit of God and the person of Jesus being in the same place at the same time. You don't have to choose one or the other. That wouldn't make any sense, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. But there's a second thing that we should be aware of as well, and and it's this, and I've said it a couple of times, but it bears uh, emphasis for us because of uh, the possibility of being misunderstood It is not as if the Spirit has been somehow passive, sitting on the sidelines until this point in human history. That's not the biblical presentation of the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has been active from the very days of creation, right? From the very creation of the world, the creation of mankind, to the salvation of, of every single soul up to this point in human history, the Spirit of God has been at work creating faith in us, preserving the people of God. There's no salvation ever without the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has thus not been sidelined. He's been gifting. He's been calling. He has been equipping He has been, for example, inspiring the writers of Holy Scripture up to this point in human history. The Spirit of God has been at work in the world. But clearly, something is about to change, and something's about to change for the better, for the advantage. The the advantage isn't in the departure itself. The advantage isn't somehow in not being with Jesus, because, of course, I mean, which of us doesn't want, doesn't have one of the the highest, hopefully, desire of our lives to be with Jesus, to be in the presence of Jesus. The advantage is where he's going and what it means that he goes there. That's why at the beginning of the passage, he says, and he reemphasizes, none of you asks me where I'm going. Because in this case, where he's going makes all the difference to the significance of the departure. Where are you going? He's going to the glorious place of being with and at the right hand of his father as the God-man. As the God-man. He's going there to this place by way of of the cross. And when he gets to where he is going, what that means is there is now a man who has been declared righteous, who is in the very presence of God, who is with God, a declaration of righteousness of that man. He's the only one who's ever been so declared. He's the only one who has ever now given the seat at the right hand of the Father as the God-man. That is where he is going. And it means, it means that the sacrifice of his life has been accepted. It means that atonement has been made. It means that salvation has been accomplished. And if we could, if we could roll John 15 into this, sorry, I know it's been a while, but John 15 is the passage, remember, where Jesus is affirming the friendship with them. What he's saying to them is, what this means is, you've got a friend. You have a friend in the heavenly places. A friend in heaven. The history of salvation has led to this moment, this particular moment, and the world needs to know The world needs to know that this salvation has been accomplished. It is my purpose that the entire world knows this news. And so, I am sending you the Spirit. Now, the Spirit provides comfort. And the comfort of God's presence. Praise God for that. We know that. We know that the Spirit guides us into truth. Praise God for that. Here though here in this section the promise of the spirit relates to the mission of these men and the mission of these men is the mission that was given to Jesus as well it is the mission of the spirit of god we could read it in many places john 12:47 jesus says i do not come to judge him for i did not come to judge the world but i came to save the world, John three seventeen. After the well-known passage, John three seventeen, Jesus says, "For I didn't. The, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him." The purpose of God is the salvation of the world, and for that purpose to be advanced. God and Jesus are sending the Spirit not only to the church, sending the Spirit into the world. I'm sending the Spirit into the world. Now, the world hasn't been viewed as such a nice place in the Gospel of John. If we went back just a few more verses, we would say that Jesus says, Know that the world has hated me before it hated you. But now the declaration is, I'm sending my Spirit into the world to gather up my people. Listen to the verses just before that that close, chapter 15. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The mission of the Spirit and the mission of the apostles is the mission of bearing witness those two things are linked together the mission that belongs to one belongs to the other as well in in earlier in chapter 15 remember where Jesus says to them you did not choose me but i chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit Should abide or your fruit should remain. I'm not I don't want us to turn to it right now. But take some time after the service. Look at the verse that's on the front of your bulletin and see what makes fruit around the world. It is the coming of the Spirit of God that causes fruit to be yielded to the world. Now it's the mission that belongs to the disciples, to the twelve. I've chosen you to bear fruit. And It is the mission of the Spirit of God. These things are linked together. So we ask this question then, okay, how then does the Spirit do this work, proclaiming this news out into the world, bearing this witness out into the world? Verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this is about to be expanded in verses 9 through 11, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But here Jesus is saying to us, this is how the Spirit is going to do the work that I'm sending him to do. The Spirit will convict. Now, admittedly, when we hear the word convict, we don't necessarily have nice thoughts associated with the world word convict. It's not like, it doesn't sound like saving. The word can mean convict in a judicial sense. The, the word can mean convict as it relates to our hearts, that, that I can be convicted of sin, that I can be convinced of sin, exposed, Is another way of saying it. The Spirit of God will expose in a way that brings shame. Things are revealed that we'd otherwise prefer to keep secret, and it's shameful. This is the work of the Spirit of God. One writer puts it this way. The world masquerades as righteous. Okay? The world masquerades as righteous. The world loves to put itself at the center of its own feel good story. The world wants to feel good about itself. And it does that as much as possible by defining its own actions as good, by a sort of agreed upon self justification that I'm okay, you're okay, what we're doing is okay. And so it redefines things in order to make itself feel better about what it's actually doing, because it doesn't want to be convicted. And how much do we see this going on in our own day, where things are redefined, evil redefined as that which is good, because then I don't feel so guilty about it. The Spirit of God works in direct opposition to that tendency. It works, he works, instead to expose. To expose what's actually going on. And now we'll look at the verses that explain this uh, more specifically. So there were three things, right, that were there. Convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Each one is explained in the subsequent verses. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. It's been said this way. The great sin of the world is actually not a moral failing. It's a theological failing. It's a failure to believe in Jesus himself. And Jesus says the Spirit will convict people that they don't believe in Jesus. Next in verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The Spirit will convict concerning this, concerning righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus then, what this is saying, is affirmed by the position to which he ascends. So the ascension, the resurrection, and then the ascension of Jesus affirms his righteousness. Jesus is, in two chapters and a few hours, about to be put on trial as an unrighteous man as as one who is just sin blasphemous in every way and the ascension the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus are going to affirm exactly the opposite of that that actually Jesus is the one who is righteous and everybody else who stands looking at him our righteousness is like filthy rags it's nothing compared to the righteousness of Jesus in fact it's worse than nothing it's offensive and then the final one concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And the idea here is simple. If the ruler of this world is judged, if, the, if, if what Satan wants to do is to separate man and God, to condemn to death, to hell, mankind, then when the ruler of this world is judged... The reality is that all those who follow the ruler of this world, who don't believe in the Son of God, will be judged as well. So what Jesus is saying here to them, to these men, to the eleven at this point, is that when you go out and bear witness about me, which is the mission that I've given to you, go and bear witness to me, When you share the gospel or preach the word, your words will be accompanied by this spirit, the spirit doing this work. Prophetically, it's what was prophesied, for example, in the book of Ezekiel. Did you catch this in the midst of this passage when I read it earlier? We think of this passage as a great passage because it promises the new heart, right? the heart of flesh as opposed to the heart of stone. But did you catch verse 31? Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. And then 32, be ashamed and confounded for your ways. What, what Jesus is saying the Spirit is going to do is thats that. Is that. Is that. You will hate yourself for your sins. And that's the work of the Spirit of God. It's the convicting work of the Spirit of God. Verse 25 in the passage says, or excuse me, uh, in, in this Ezekiel passage as well, continues to describe what God is going to do. I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. That is, the the righteousness of Jesus will be shown, will be seen then, and all of the nations will see it. So, prophetically, it's described. Illustratively, if you want to see what an illustration of this looks like, how this takes place in the preaching and the ministry of these men, think, you don't have to think anywhere beyond the preaching of Peter in the book of Acts. So, Peter preaches in the book of Acts, this first sermon, and we read this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This cutting to the heart, this fact that the words that were preached by Peter, the word of God cuts them to the heart, that's the work of the Spirit. That's this work being described in John chapter 16. That's the Spirit of God, convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then theologically, it is what we confessed together. It's what we call effectual calling. It's the way that the redemption purchased by Christ is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. It is the work of convincing us of our sin and of our misery. And so Jesus says, This going away, my going away, is an advantage to you in the ministry that I've entrusted to you because the Spirit will go before you, preparing the hearts and ministering the Word into the hearts of the people. And thus, for these men, expand your expectations. The last day has begun, and this is the work of the Spirit in the last day to expand this, to enlarge this to people. That's at least, I think, what this passage says, if we can understand it with our minds. But what I'd like to do is take just a few moments now and personalize it. And I'd like to personalize it in two ways for us. And, and the first way I'd like to personalize it is with this, is with our own experience of the gospel in light of this particular text. I hope that, like me, this passage for you resonates deep within your soul. Because I, I think of my own conversion. I think of my own walk with Christ. I, I think back to the time when I was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would have asked me just coming up off the street or, I don't know, a teacher or something, ask me, are you you basically a good person? Are you righteous? I don't know if I would have known what righteous was enough to explain anything about that. But if you would have asked me, are you a a good person? I would have said, yeah, I'm I'm a pretty good person. And I would have suppressed the truth about myself. I would have suppressed that little voice of conscience that wants to say, "No, no, no, you're not really. And what I would have done for you at that moment is I would have put on the masquerade. I would have put on the facade. And I would have said to you, I would have protested and I would have said, yeah, I am a pretty good person. But then, there came a time when I heard a man speak the word of God and the spirit grabbed hold of me and did exactly the work that is described Right here. Convinced me, convicted me, exposed me as a person who A, didn't believe in Jesus. Who B, then realized that Jesus was a completely righteous king and I, on the other hand, am completely filthy. And the last point, I was judged. I was doomed to hell. The Spirit did exactly this work that is described right here, and I can remember it as clearly as I remember anything else. I was undone. I had no other hope. I was left hopeless by this work of the Spirit of God. I'll say it if you can understand me in the right way, please do. This slaying of the Spirit that the Spirit cut into the heart. And I wept. And I wept when I thought about it. And it was the Spirit of God. And it turned out to be, we'll get this next week, the birth pangs from which a spiritual rebirth took place when the Spirit of God then enabled me to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. Now, that was the time of my salvation. I can say in my own life that on a smaller scale, I see this same kind of thing at work as I continue to struggle and continue to grow, not in a salvific way, not in the way of first being saved, but in the way of growth. I see the Spirit continuing to convict and then point to Jesus in this way. Now, surely your experience of this is different than mine. The particulars will be different for each one of us. But I have to ask you this question. As much as it is important for us to understand this passage, do you feel it? And I don't mean to be overly subjective with that. I just mean to say what we are talking about here is the operation of the Spirit of God upon the human heart. Have you seen that experience? Have you felt that experience of the way the Spirit of God works? Because if you have, if you have come to the point where you can say, I loathe myself and I loathe these iniquities and these abominations in my life, then there is fertile ground for the gospel of Jesus Christ at that point. Then there is hope. It doesn't sound to us like convicting would be so nice, but convicting is exactly what we need. It's essential to our then embracing Jesus Christ. The second way I want us to personalize this is by considering what does this mean for our witness? These words were spoken by Jesus, who himself was the one sent from the Father. It was spoken, they were spoken to the apostles, who were the sent ones, and we are the apostolic church Jesus then promises the Spirit, and I want to be careful in how I say this, He promises the Spirit not only for our conversion and for our comfort in times of sorrow and sadness, and praise God that He does that, but He promises the Spirit and gives the Spirit to empower our witness in the world to, if you will, get us outside of ourselves. What I was suggesting at the beginning of this sermon is that the disciples are so caught up in their own sadness, in their own grief, that they can't at this moment get outside of themselves. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, and I know this is just using colloquial language, he'll get you out of your own heads. Out of your own self-absorption, because I have a mission for you. And the Spirit has a mission. He converts you. He consoles you. And He sends us. He sends us into the world. And that's actually one of the ways why, how He consoles us as well. When we go out, when we share the gospel with someone, when we speak the words of Christ to someone, this is the advantage The advantage is the Spirit of God is there and at work in that very moment and convicting them to one end or another. The Spirit goes before us and does that work. Let's close with this observation. Our very existence as a church, as this particular church, a church that is made up of some Jews... And Gentiles as well, halfway around the world, is the evidence that Jesus has kept this promise. That he has sent the Spirit into the world, and that the Spirit, whom he has sent in the world, has convent, continued to do his work of convicting, of convincing, of converting, and then of sending. Sending God's people into the world. May he continue to do this mighty work in us and through us and in this community around us, this part of his world. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray with thanksgiving for this painful work of your spirit that ends up being the most liberating work we could possibly have, convicted of our sin and then shown the freedom that is ours In Christ. Lord, we pray that today, if there are those here who are trying to convince you, to convince people, to convince one another that that they're good, that they're righteous, we pray that today would be the day of their undoing. That the masquerade would be exposed, that it would be shown for what it is a filthy rag. There is no righteousness besides that which you, Jesus, have purchased for us and granted to us. And then today would be the day of the rebirth, of the renewal, of the new life that is found in the Spirit. And Lord, then, send us out. Send us out into the world as those clothed with this Spirit. And Spirit of God, do your work. Do your work. And our unsaved friends, family members, colleagues, people who live around us, do your mighty work and let us join you in bearing witness to the Christ in whom is our hope and in whose name we pray.